Hey, this week we have a special episode co-hosted with my girlfriend Maya, and we're going to be talking about Microsoft rolling out Copilot for Office, Belkin leaving the Smart Home Alliance matter, and a whole lot more. This podcast is 100% supported by Nebula subscribers who get the show a day early on Friday and also get an optional video version. To support the show, go to nebula.tv slash chillout and sign up. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Friday Chillout, uh, hosted by Martin, who you know from Tech Altar and the Friday Checkout, and me, Maya, your guest co-host for this uh, episode today. Hi, Martin. How are Hello. you doing? Hello. I'm very excited to have you here. I'm doing um, good. Thank you. Tristan is away on a well-deserved holiday, so uh, you are our special, our special guest, I suppose. Uh, that's right. Let's get uh, this first question out of the way, because many of our listeners are probably uh, wondering who is this person speaking to us today. So let's start with that. Uh, how do we know each other? What kind of project have we done in the past? And why are we talking today? Yeah, so uh, Maya is my girlfriend. To those who don't know, we've been uh, we've known each other for a very long time, over 10 years. And we've also, she's also kind of behind every single project that I've ever touched in some capacity. <laughs> so specifically, Maya uh, was the brains behind the Technorama series on Nebula. Um, and uh, we worked on Crowd together. Uh, uh, we were co-founders there. Uh, she's also behind, uh, I think, every logo that I've ever had. <laughs> every branding element. If you've seen new palms in the studio um, uh, for the new Friday checkout, those were bought by Maya. So uh, essentially a shadow uh, lurking behind um, uh, all the projects that you see my face on, but she doesn't usually like to be public. So uh, this is your first your first chance at seeing her and hearing her talk, but she's been, she's been lurking there for a long time. Very excited to have you here. And what the reason why you're here specifically, other than Tristan being on holidays, is that we're going to be talking about some topics that you're an expert on, like smart home. So can you tell me what your background in smart home is? Uh, sure. Uh, I worked in um, smart home industry for a couple of years um, in the past. Um, I worked in a Chinese company that was manufacturing smart home devices for some of the European brands, and they had their own brand. And I also worked for a telco company who was trying to get into the world of IoT uh, and smart home. And um, I was doing, in both companies, I was mostly doing some uh, business development, some, some marketing and some uh, product, product management as well. Yeah, yeah, great. All right, shall we move on to the, the main topics? Yes, I have prepared three topics for us to discuss today. Uh, and the first one is Microsoft introducing Copilot for their 365 uh, software. Uh, that is Outlook, PowerPoint, Excel, and OneNote. So you might have seen this announcement um, recently. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about your impression on this big announcement. What do you think? Yeah, so uh, I would have loved to cover this at the Friday checkout, but it came out literally after I finished filming. So it's very, very fresh news. But basically, this is um, essentially GPT-4 built into all the Office apps, um, very similar to what we've seen with Notion in the past. We've already talked about Notion AI uh, on one of the Friday checkouts. And uh, Google just announced essentially the same for their uh, Google Workspace software as well. Uh, so this is... 
the concept is basically that you have GPT-4 or something like GPT-4, but like a very similar type of intelligence, but it has the context of all of your documents and all of your files and all of your contacts that you have in, in the system. Um, and it can summarize documents, it can write things, it can send emails, it can look through your emails, it can uh, uh, create to-do lists, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It really sounds like um, a, a proper like, executive assistant who has access to all of your files and does all the things that you'd want to automate and get help with. So the demos looked very impressive. And the most impressive part to me was how flexible they were. So you could jump between a PowerPoint and an Outlook email and a to-do list and a Word document. And you could be like, hey, um, you know, here's this Word file, make a PowerPoint out of it. Oh, but I want, you know, I want the colors to be more red and I want more images. And it pulls in it like images from the internet. So um, it seems like an extremely powerful tool on demo. Of course, you're going to have to see what it looks like in real life. Uh, but uh, we've actually had some experience with Notion just recently as well. I've used it a little bit in the past and it was pretty cool. But you had a funny, funny experience with it today, didn't you? Yeah, I'm always quite skeptical when it comes to this kind of demos because it always works perfectly there. And when Right now, even when you build a PowerPoint presentation and you want to import a style from a different PowerPoint presentation, it does not only always work. Something breaks. And now, <laughs> yeah, there's it, it's it's still kind of um, bumpy. But yeah, in preparation to this podcast, I I got um, I found an article about uh, one of the topics that we will be talking about, and I was like, oh, I'm going to use Notion to uh, get a summary of this article and see how it works. And um, what what turned out to be that the, it was factually wrong, the summary that, that it uh, spit out for us. So I would still be kind of car careful with what AI is um, producing for us. Uh, but we can't deny that um, it is going to be a useful tool. Maybe we can't rely on it uh, only. But one of the things that I uh, remember from this um, demo was that we, the users right now, use less than 10% of uh, capacity that PowerPoint is giving us, right? We know yeah. that the presentation that we see at work, they all look like they did 10, 20 years ago. There is an image and right. there is some text and we, are, we don't have time to really get to know all of those cool features that had been introduced to PowerPoint and to Word and to Excel. So I think this, you know, like we would get some baseline that we can improve with AI. That's right. I, if you remember uh, Office software, the biggest discussion in it was when uh, Microsoft moved from their standard menu system to the ribbon uh, because they th said exactly the same thing like in 2003 or whenever this was that, hey, uh, Word and Excel and PowerPoint, they have like 17,000 features and people are using like 40 because it's so undiscoverable when everything was stuck in the menu bar somewhere on top. So they were like, what if we showed people all of these options? And there was a ribbon that was always there. Of course, it was very controversial because people don't really like change and it was taking up some space and whatever. But there was, there was a step one in trying to get people to be exposed to all the features. But then you would still have to go and learn how to use all the features. Uh, and this is, I guess, step two which is, uh, what if we just made the 
software itself know how to use the software and you just told it what you wanted and then you can and then you can still go in and kind of tweak things uh, uh, afterwards but the software knows itself and you don't have to figure out all the little details yeah exactly i think we're already doing something similar right when you work with excel and you want to perform some kind of action I mean, we do the basics we add and subtract and change cell colors but if you want to create a more complicated formula or a pivot table you would go to Google and you would write, how do I find the mini the lowest number in this table? And you would find an article, most probably from Microsoft as well, um, telling you how to do it. So now you can ask the assistant already within the software and it would not only right. give you instructions step, step by step, but it would do it for you, right? This is also what we have seen in a demo. So um, yeah, I think yeah. it is useful and they know how to present this use case in the best way. Uh, they show you, okay, you want to write a speech or you want to write a good a cover letter. You will get this generic yeah. template and then you can add all the personalized things about your relationship with the person you are writing to or about on top and make it feel less like a, you know, the stock photo of a, a letter, yeah. right? Uh, and I feel like uh, for for you and me, we use uh, Office and Office-like tools quite a lot, so I'm I'm fairly comfortable figuring it out. And I'm also uh, I write all the time, so I don't I don't know if like an AI pre-writing things for me would save time or actually be a time waster for me to then try to massage that into something that I want rather than just writing it myself. But I know a lot of people, including you, who don't particularly like writing, uh, and then a lot of people who, uh, unlike both of us probably don't really know how to use Excel in any level of depth that that is meaningful. And I think for them, just being able to say like, hey, do this for me, I think that's that's really powerful. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people can empathize with the feeling where you are pretty good with making bullet points, but not really good in transforming those bullet points in a nice sounding paragraph. And this is something that I could have used while being uh, in school and as a new university, right? You want to cover this, 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 ABC, and here it goes. Here is a, a well-structured, stylistically yeah. correct... Make me an essay. <laughs> Make exactly. me an essay out of this. Yeah, yeah and, 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 that, and I, think, it, I think that's... Uh, I prefer this much more to uh, the AI creating something because if the AI creates something with information that it finds itself... Um, I feel like there, there's a lot of uh, room for error uh, and then it creates factual problems and then you're not really sure uh, whether it, the thing that it created is true and then you have to spend time checking whether it is true and, and, and if, if you're already doing that you might as well have uh, created a summary yourself but I think if, if you do what you've just described which is that you, you take the text that you have uh, and you just um, want to turn it into something that's pretty in PowerPoint, or you want to turn it into longer text or shorter text or bullet points, you know what the context is. So as soon as you see what the AI generates for you, you can be like, okay, I like it, I change it, I accept it, I reject it, etc. So I think that makes sense. Yeah, and, then, and a follow-up thing that I wanted to ask you here is, do you think the next step would be um, voice? So giving all those instructions over a smart speaker. So I don't even have to type it out, but I sit in front of a PowerPoint and I just speak to an AI. 
So partially, this is already happening. Like Bing, for example, has a voice input on your phone, the Bing AI. So it's of course, of course, that's going to be built in at some point. And I think maybe even Copilot, you can do some voice input at some point. But um, I don't think voice is the future of anything. I made a whole video about this. Um, it is not easy to structure a thought as a specific uh, voice command. It's not easy to, to uh, you know, go back and like correct this word, but actually I want it to be two, not four, and whatever. It's much easier to just type this out than to write it. Um, and so, yes, I think voice will play some role, but this this concept that we had at some point that, you know, like Google Assistant is going to actually replace your computer is like completely nonsensical to me. Yeah. Um, all right. Talking about technologies of the future, should we move, should we move into the topic number two? Yeah, uh, let's do the, it. The story uh, that we are talking about is... Uh, Belkin announcing that their smart home brand Wemo will be um, stopping or like mm, putting on pause their Matter enabled uh, device line. Uh, and um, it is, and it was just announced recently. I think it also did not make it to the Friday checkout. Uh, so it's a good opportunity for us to, to chat a bit more about this today. Uh, and I have a quote for you from the Vice President of Global Communications and Corporate Development at Belkin, uh, uh -huh. uh, who confirmed that um, even though the company remains convinced that Matter will have a significantly positive impact on the smart home industry, it has decided to take a step back, regroup and rethink their approach to smart home. And in a follow-up, they also added that they want to find a way how to differentiate their products on the market, which may imply that um, smart home devices becoming a bit commoditized, especially with the hundreds and hundreds of brands coming um, into the market in a lower budget segment. So um, maybe let's start with explaining what is matter and um, what do you think about uh, what is happening yeah uh can you give me a summary of what matter is i'm uh maybe you you probably know the definitions better than me um yeah sure so matter is a smart home interoperability standard created by several companies but many basically of the all the all the companies players. right so yeah like, right the google yeah. the apple the samsung the amazon um and many others um and it is something that uh, i know that already when I was working in smart home, that was in 2014 or less, many people were waiting and looking at all of the big companies for them to bring something like that. And they said that this is the moment where the smart home industry will kick off, right? Explode. We are all waiting. Yeah. Exactly. We are, there were, we know that smart home had been a topic since like probably fifties, right? We are, we, we, there was already connected devices. And then there were the smart smartphone came and still everybody was waiting, okay, which of the big companies are going to bring a standardized way to make devices interoperable, which is, okay, I can buy Hue bulbs because I like them the most. I can get a smart speaker from Sonos. I can get a smart lock from August. And they all can be interacting and working together. And that was the moment that was the thing that everybody was waiting for and that would change the market and everybody will have their home 
connect. suddenly all of your devices are going to be smart because it's not a pain in the ass. So this was first kind of solved by um, these platforms like HomeKit and whatever the Google version of HomeKit is, right? So like you could connect your Hue and your August Smart Lock to, let's say, HomeKit and then control everything to there. But if the device did not support HomeKit, or it was in the Alexa ecosystem, or it was in the Google ecosystem. So like you kind of have to choose one of these large proprietary ecosystems, and then you couldn't really travel in between them easily. But then Matter is like this meta connector between all of them, right? So you theoretically, it doesn't matter which one you support, it all, it all supports Matter and everyone's on board and Kumbaya and we're all happy and selling smart home devices like there's no tomorrow, right? Yeah, uh, but I mean, it's not an easy way to do, right? It's not an easy way to make this happen. We know that matter had been uh, postponed for mul multiple times since the announcement, and they just started really um, onboarding devices onto onto this um, standard. Uh, but looking at what is happening, really, and and looking around, um, would you say that IoT is a thing? You know, is the smart home? revolution did, did it come to be? Yeah, I think I remember when we were in China, living in Shenzhen, and you were working in this uh, smart home company. And then after we moved to Berlin, and you worked in smart home, um, consistently, we had this running joke between us that, uh, you know, McKinsey or BCG or one of these companies projected that next year, we're going to have 2 billion connected smart home devices. And like, it's always next year. And it's always <laughs> actually not next year. And so I think we're still somewhere along this curve. The adoption has been way slower than anyone would have probably predicted uh, uh, at any po point in the past. Um, and also, what I think, uh, I think, I think these uh, uh, compatibility standards do help quite a lot because as a user, you don't want to have to think about it. like who cares if <laughs> you know what standard uh, I, I should be connecting my products to. Um, but uh, it, it, I think it does bring up the question that Belkin is seeing, which is that if everything connects to everything and there's very little differentiation left for all these brands, there's no ecosystem that you can build. There's no lock-in that you can do. There's no walled gardens, no walls that you can raise around your garden, etc. Right? In the past, if you had a hue, hue light bulb, you were more likely to get another hue light bulb because you had a hue bridge and they worked together and then you had one app to connect all of them. But if suddenly it's all just the same thing, then why would I why would I care if uh, uh, there's an ecosystem? Why would I care about connecting them and so on? So I understand why why Belkin is hesitant because you really get commoditized and then you just have to fight over price uh, uh, or I guess features if you have something unique. But do you think there's anything unique in the smart home industry? Like, does anybody have a product that's like five times better than the other? Uh, that's a, a good question. I think like you see um, different trends coming and swooping uh, the, the the smart home industry, right? There was a moment when we were all into lighting when the Hue came out and it was one of the success story of, of yeah. this. Uh, and we see that it's probably one of the most popular products that you, you can go to a non-techie household and you can see that there is yeah. a hue bulb in, in there, right? So Normal that people was have hue lights, yeah. <laughs> yes, we need to sometimes know, like, step out away from the techie world and look at the real world, right? So that I think yeah. that was one of the big transformations. Then I think the smart speakers, I mean, okay, we can argue if this is 
a smart home, but uh, if you think about Alexa and Sonos and uh, connected speakers, not only Bluetooth, but the one that is actually, you know, connected to, to your to your Wi-Fi system, I think that was also a quite big and I would say mass market thing. Is it still? I don't know. I know many people who own a smart speaker and they set it, uh, use it to set a timer and so. um, play Spotify, right? But it is a use case, right? But 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 I want to I want to yeah. say I think there there the problem is not with the smart speaker but with voice assistants. So I think the thing that failed is not the smart speaker, which we do want. We do want to have a connected speaker that we can just list, say, hey, play this song. But what did not work is controlling your entire life through voice. That's that's the part of it that I think uh, have- has failed. Yeah, and uh, but there were also many successes in general in this industry, and what problems were solved in the past, let's say 10 years, right? There was, there were always a question, is smart home not a thing yet because of the price? We saw that right now, if you want, you can get a set of smart lights, very, very cheap, right? So the price is not an issue. Um, there were a lot of um, voices that the UX is not friendly, right? Because it's, if you're a techie, if you're a maker, you can set up your whole home automation thing by yourself, but um, a mass market consumer does not know how to connect uh, to an APN uh, connected to. The, I think this was also solved, solved in recent years. You can just scan a QR code and you have everything set up for you. Yeah. Um, so we are we're seeing that a lot of blockers that we thought are stopping smart home from exploding had been taken away. Um, so maybe the user problem is still not as big as everybody thought. And the millions and millions of connected cows that McKinsey was uh, predicting <laughs> are, are not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, the, the question is like, I think we're we're slowly solving all the blockers. Uh, it's more easy to use. It's more easy to have interoperable systems. Uh, it's more reliable. It's cheaper, blah, blah, blah. But then the question now is, do people want this in the first place? Like, is there is there a problem being solved with these connections that is useful to consumers in the first place? Or do you just want to walk up to your wall and press the on switch and the light goes on and that's all you need from it? So I guess somewhere somewhere in between is the answer. Yeah. And uh, one of the uh, anti-IoT activists would say that one of the problems uh, is the data Wait, privacy issue. Anti-IoT activists. <laughs> I don't know. I would say like uh, the uh, the IoT pessimists. Let's call them IoT pessimists. Yes. Say that uh, the problem is the data privacy, right? And we do not want uh, our coffee machine to beam our coffee drinking uh, habits to the cloud. But uh, if we are honest to ourselves, our smartphones already know much more about us than our Roomba or our connected um, uh, espresso machine. Uh, so uh, if, yeah, if although, it really is a convenience, people would use it, right? Yeah, that's that's true. I think that's the, that's the correct answer. If if people really wanted this, the, the privacy has never stopped people from doing something en masse that, that they actually enjoy doing. Um, but it is something where if if the trade-off, like the, if the benefit is so small, and you have to have another connected device that you have to manage and update, and maybe it's a security br- uh, issue, and I don't know. Like at that point, it just becomes like a whatever. Why? Why would I connect my coffee machine? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, let's move on to the third topic, uh, inspired by Tristan, the number of the week that I have for you, and it is uh, 100,000. 100,000 is a number of cars that Chinese uh, company BYD will supply uh, 6th by 2028. 6th is uh, a German rental car rental company. Um, and it is interesting because until now, 6th had mainly worked with a European car brands such as Mercedes, BMW and Volkswagen Group. And uh, 100,000 might seem not that high in the scope of China or uh, in general, but it is the largest deal with a European company to date from BYD. Uh, and uh, I thought it might be interesting to talk about. So uh, what do you think? Uh, will we see more Chinese uh, OEMs coming into the market, especially in this more, let's say, premium offering in the future? Uh, yeah, so I think it's already already a big trend for Chinese brands to try to come to Europe. Europe is much more friendly to uh, Chinese stuff than the US, for example. We're much less aggressive about uh, rejecting them and being freaked out about uh, competition and so on, even though I think our car industry has more, if not, <laughs> at least as much, if not more to lose. Um, uh, but but generally, uh, it's not the first Chinese brand uh, and I think there's, it's not going to be the last one either. BYD is extremely successful in China. They started by making cars and, and batteries, I think, separately. So, like, they made both, and then they combined them to become uh, the premium electric car brand maker. They're the second largest battery maker in China after Ketel. Um So, these are the two really, really big uh, uh, powerhouses there. Uh, the Chinese battery industry for a very long time, and I think it still is, um, uh, very highly uh, uh, subsidized by the Chinese government because you could only sell cars uh, with certain um, government benefits if you uh, used a battery that was made in China. So uh, this really, really bolstered KTL and uh, BYD. The Chinese electric uh, car market is the largest in the world by far. It's also really fast growing. So it's a really powerful market. Uh, their electric cars are uh, very comp uh, competent. Uh, They're very good cars. And uh, so I think as Europe becomes more and more of a market for them, we'll see more brands coming. What I find very interesting is that BYD came to Europe uh, primarily through a rental deal, not necessarily a sales deal. I think this is a smart idea because you introduce people to the brand and to your products, but you don't have to instantly convince them to make, uh, you know, like a 30, 40, 50, whatever, $1,000 or euro purchase. Uh, that's very difficult to do. A car is an emotional thing. Uh, people don't know the brand. Uh, people might not trust the brand yet. So you let them drive the car. Um, and then once enough people have driven the car and they're all around your city and whatever, people just get used to the brand and then they start thinking, oh, actually it drives really well. It's electric, blah, blah, blah. And so you, you it's a really nice first step for them to introduce the market to, um, to this. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, people know this, but rental... Uh, cars also then get resold as secondhand cars uh, after a few years of uh, being leased. So I think it, it's a good good way of introducing um, first-time owners to the brand as well because they will not be ha having to make this really big jump to the, the full price, but they're going to be buying a used electric uh, BYD after like three years or whatever. 
Um, but we also see that other brands, other Chinese brands, have taken really interesting routes into Europe as well. Um, right here uh, in Berlin, we have this brand called Link & Co. It's a brand from the Chinese uh, giant Geely, who also owns Volvo. Um, and Link & Co. is a brand uh, whose cars, you once again, you don't buy, but you rent them. It's a long-term monthly fee that you pay. Um, it's kind of like leasing 2.0. So it, leasing already does this to some degree, but it's a subscription. It's a car subscription. You pay it for as many months as you want. Uh, I think it's like six, 700 euros, something like this. And then you have a car uh, and you can drive it around. I think it's once again, this concept that if somebody is going to be uh, experimental enough to rent a car or uh, um they might as well be experimental enough to try something new, like a Chinese brand that they haven't heard of before. So I think those go together, and it's a smart way to enter the market uh, versus their previous attempts, which have not really worked out, which is when they try to like come in, you know, big marketing muscle, roll out the cars, and then get people to buy, and then nobody bought them. So I think this makes sense. What do you think? Man. Um, yeah, I think it it is a smart move. I can totally see why a more conservative car enthusiasts would be um, interested to drive this car, you know, not buying it, but renting it, let's say, to to, to just uh, get the feeling. And then you see that it is, it drives well, it is, it feels nice inside, right? It's not a Chinese brand, but you, you can actually use the product before uh, considering even buying it. Um, yep. Question to you, would, would you buy a Chinese car? Um, I probably know the answer to this question, but it uh, might be. <laughs> I mean, the answer is that I very much hope to never have to buy a car in my life. <laughs> um, thankfully, we live in a city center of Berlin, so I do not, like, I think I drive twice a year, uh, and I definitely do not want to buy one. I'd be happy to rent one, if that counts. Like, uh, why not? Um I think BYD makes pretty decent-looking cars, and they drive well, supposedly. So, I wouldn't be completely opposed to it. Now, you? Um, I think same. I I don't like driving cars. <laughs> I I do have a driver's <laughs> license, but I I I don't I don't like driving a car. So, probably would not even consider renting one. But uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is a good uh, segue to our mailbag, and we have a few questions from our audience that uh, had been sent over before this episode, so let's get into it. First question uh, to both of us, um, and it could be also, it is related to, to the topics we've uh, talked about today. Uh, what's the technology or product that's been announced and you are like, yes, this is it? this will change the world and then it failed and for the uh, person asking the question it was a google glass so what would be such technology for you martin yeah so i kind of agree um it i would say it's vr uh I, it's i don't think it so so my my viewpoint is not that it has failed but rather that the the road to it succeeding was so much longer than i ever would have thought um, I thought that by now we would have had um, more VR and AR glasses that um, that would have been mass market and uh, cheap and useful and uh, all around us. Um, I think it's still going to happen. 
but just the time horizon is so much longer than I expected. What is it for you? Um, for me, uh, it's it's quite funny, but um, I was quite excited about flexible uh, displays. And when I saw the first ones, the first flex phones, uh, and especially the one that would wrap around your wrist, I was I thought it's amazing. And I thought that, wow, this is going to be a thing. I think it was like 2015, maybe. And uh-huh. like we will all wear our smartphones on our wrists as in uh-huh. like this long display that would straighten. I, I d- haven't thought about the foldables, right, which is what we ended up having <laughs> today. But I kind of imagine that this wrist wrapping smartphone is going to be a really, really cool thing. And I think there have been some companies that tried it, right? Novo and a couple of others, but seems yeah, like it's I tr- not. I tried that. I tried a Nubia or ZTE, one of these. I think it was a Nubia wrist wrapping smartwatch thing. It was janky as hell. <laughs> I tried it, I think, at MWC um, or IFA. Uh, but do you think do you think it's still going to happen though? Because this is one of those things that you know, like something is seems dumb for for a couple of years, and then suddenly the tech just becomes easy enough, and then it just works. Mm, I'm not sure. I I think that uh, our unscratchable displays are still scratching mm. so having it wrapped yeah. on the outside it's not really a, it's a usability issue probably yeah. not the technology plus you, plus you probably couldn't get a display wide enough to that would look fine on your wrist that would actually be mm. useful once you uh, like used it as a phone either so okay yeah. I see makes sense cool uh, and the second question which is uh, the opposite what technology you thought was meh, but it did actually change your life or people's life in general. How about you go first? I have to think about my my answer. I, I know which is what should be your answer, actually. <laughs> Tell me. Tell me. Uh, I remember back in, I don't know, like 2012, when I told you, hmm, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and you're oh, like, yeah. no. Nope. Yeah. And if we did invest okay. in Bitcoin back then, <laughs> yeah, 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 you were right. You were right about that. So I come from a traditional business and economics background, and uh, so uh, like monetary theory and uh, like the concept of money in my brain was quite uh, conservatively placed. And so, my, you know, the the concept that that this Bitcoin would be worth something with absolutely zero value behind it no no organization is backing it there is no nobody who accepts it why would anybody accept it um it was just completely crazy to me that that this that this digital token it just becomes worth 20,000 euros for the sake of being worth that much so this yeah i i could not wrap my head around this i thought about it for a long time we had these discussions um, I think you were right that people just believed something is worth something and that it's worth something. But I, I did not at all predict it being a thing this many years later. You're right. Yeah. and But I mean, we've seen in the, especially in the last year or so that this the, the bubble that was created around this industry is not fully sustainable, right? Like there are some use cases that did not work out and it it the, the thing is that it took longer than we expected right for for it to kind of burst in the end yeah but then uh, 
the question is still like a lot of crypto stuff has burst and a lot of crypto stuff has washed has been washed away but bitcoin is at 24,000 euros i think last time i checked so i mean that's so if you bought it in 2012 amount of money yeah there's an insane amount of money like the the one bitcoin it's worth it's worth nothing like <laughs> this thing is worth nothing and people are paying 24,000 euros for it so it's it it's still and of course it has cr- crashed and gone up and down and whatever and uh but but it it is still like you know three four five times as much as it was just a few years ago so the despite all the crashes and despite everything this has held on to its value which i think means that this is a durable thing this is not going away because if all these crashes haven't collapsed it into the ground then what will yeah. Okay. Uh, the last question. What's Which yours? A- What's yours? Oh, what's my technology? Um, yeah. Good question. Mm, I think <laughs> I think when I saw uh, smartwatches for the first time, like you know, the real smartwatch that actually looks like a watch, not like a, a huge thing, uh, it felt very futuristic, and it felt you know like a Mister Gadget kind of thing. That like wow, you know, you can have this. Uh, but I did not expect it to blow up this much as it is, especially with uh, Apple Watch becoming just like an item that many, many non-techies also own. So I yeah. I thought it's going to be an expensive luxury thing that some people will have. But um, if you look at the regular Apple Watch users, it's become much bigger than I ever expected. Mm, makes sense. Okay, um, last question. Um, and it's also kind of ties back to our first topic today. Which AI tools have you used or planning to use? And would any of them help you with Technorama or other projects you are working on? So I've used some image generation AI tools. I use DALL-E and Midjourney uh, for kind of like thumbnail brainstorming and stuff. Uh, I find it quite useful for that. You just want to like kind of visualize an idea and th- and think about whether it's worth spending your time on actually creating it. Uh, so for that, it's very useful. Um, I've also like specifically cut out a s- few small elements from an image and like use them in some thumbnail. Um, I, I, I don't think I've used it to like the extent that many other people use it. Uh, where you cr- like create whole creations with it and then you, you use them big time. Um, but yeah, uh, other than that, I used some of these text generation tools and chat GPT for uh, like trying them out, but I still haven't found like a super easy way to integrate them into my workflow yet. Uh, but I was thinking actually that uh, every Friday or every Thursday, we have to do the Friday checkout and uh, then the Friday chill out. And uh, we go through all the... Um, tech news stories of the week. We scour all the websites and all the forums and everything. I was thinking that one of the workflows that we should have is to tell Bing to tell me 10 tech news stories from the week that we should cover. And maybe it comes up with something that I missed. So <laughs> something like that could be cool. How about you? Yeah. Um, I think especially in the context of projects like Technorama, for those who don't know, it's our video series about technology portrayed in movies. Um, 
I could see how it could be helpful to do some of the tasks. For example, when we explore one topic, um, let's say killer robots in science fiction before 2000, I could see how it could just, you know, scour the internet and find all of the science fiction movies that then we would watch and analyze. Uh, but I think the the special um, thing about our videos is that you make the connections that had never been done before. So like when you analyze it and you try to come up with your thesis, it's usually we try to make it something interesting that nobody talked about it before, right? So it's not yeah. just like, okay, technology and science fiction bad, but we try to make some, you know, some new, figure new out. connection, yeah. And I think that this is something that if it's the AI is based on, you know, whatever had been written before in the internet, I don't know if making those connections would be as easy, but maybe it already is. I have an experiment with it uh, long then, enough to to say that, but it could yeah. be definitely helpful doing the tedious work, but in the end... The manual labor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so... That was the, the last question uh, from our viewers today. Um, if you want to see us uh, and watch the video of this podcast, uh, you can do it on Nebula platform. Uh, the links to that probably will be in the description of this podcast. If you are watching us on Nebula, thank you for your support. Any last words from you, Martin? Uh, yeah, if you are on Nebula, then thank you. If not, then go to nebula.tv slash chillout to check us out. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy that we hosted this thing together. I hope people enjoyed it. If you did, you can write us on Discord or on Twitter or let us know what you thought about it. And uh, we'll see you next Friday.